Bienvenidos de nuevo al podcast ICU Life and Recovery. Yo soy el presentador Mark y mi invitado hoy es mi amigo Miguel. Uh, I apologize to all of my Spanish listeners. Welcome back to the ICU Life and Recovery podcast. My name is Mark and I am the host of the podcast. And today I have something a bit uh, different. I have my friend Miguel from Madrid. Uh, I'm very excited. He is a pediatric intensivist and we have a brilliant discussion. Uh, so this podcast is, is over an hour. Um, I didn't feel it was possible to split it up as it would have disrupted the flow of the conversation and the tone of the conversation, which I think would be detrimental uh, to the listening effect as a whole. Um, I really appreciate Miguel coming on and um, conducting the podcast in his non-native language of English because as you may have been able to tell from the initial intro there, my Spanish is not anywhere near good enough to conduct uh, a high-level conversation with anyone. Um, as I said, I'm really proud to have Miguel on and it was a great discussion he is a great man and I really hope that you all enjoy it and I will pass it on to pass Mark uh, and he'll introduce Miguel and we can get right into the podcast uh, thank you welcome back everybody I am here with Miguel can you tell us who you are and what you do so my name is Miguel Rodriguez. I am a pediatric intensivist. I work in La Paz University Hospital, which is uh, one of the major hospitals in, in Madrid, in Spain. And I'm an attending physician at the uh, pediatric intensive care unit. And I also work at the um, post-ICU clinic with uh, the pediatric part. And what are we going to be talking about today? So since uh, my main interest in research and my main focus in the ICU is um, post-intensive care syndrome in pediatrics. I think that's a really good topic for today. Yep, and obviously uh, post-intensive care syndrome is, is very close to my heart in the, in the adult aspect. So just mm -hmm. for people then who aren't intensivists or intensive care professionals, uh, what is post-intensive care syndrome? So post-intensive care syndrome was defined not that long ago. I mean, we've known that after the ICU, people suffer from a range of different, a constellation of derangements after the admission of the ICU that are mainly caused by the disease that has brought them to the ICU, but also by the uh, treatments and procedures we give them in the ICU. We've known that for a long time, but in, in 2012, Dale Needham, who is uh, an adult intensivist at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, together with other stakeholders, described what we now know as uh, post-intensive care syndrome, which bundles the physical, neuropsychiatric, and psychological sequelae of, of the admission to the intensive care unit. And it also takes into account the burden of the admission of a beloved uh, one in the family. So there's also a side of the post-intensive care syndrome that's called post-intensive care syndrome family or in the family. And there is also, uh, and it's more recently described only in, in 2018 by uh, Joseph Manning and, 
and his colleagues. There is also a pediatric part of it. I'm surprised that it was so recently that it was kind of described. I would have thought it was it would have been kind of obvious that if it affects the adult yeah. intensive care, it will have equal or more profound effect in, in pediatrics. So in regards to post-intensive care syndrome in the pediatric setting, how different is it? Because obviously working with, with children, you can't necessarily ask the same questions or they don't have the same sort of physiological understanding of, of their own bodies and what's going on. So what's the biggest difficulty in finding what impairments exist post-ICU? So post-intensive care syndrome in pediatrics has to take something very uh, important into account. And that is that uh, the child plays like a central role in the family. Like when a family has children, the entire family grows around their children. And when children are admitted into the ICU, that's a great disruption in the family. That's one thing. And then children, uh, when they are admitted into the ICU, they're usually in a very important developmental period for them where they acquire critical skills for their for their entire life and also children sometimes have siblings and siblings suffer greatly when their uh, brother or sister is admitted to an ICU because one their brother or sister is away from them and is sick and then two their parents are drawn from them in and their attention is put into the sick child so it generates a huge disruption in the family and not only from the let's say emotional standpoint but also it's not unusual that parents and maybe this is not that important in europe because of the uh, society we live in but it's more important in other countries like the u.s or some lower and middle income countries parents need to stop to work to tend to their uh, critical child so it also brings a financial burden so Post-intensive care syndrome comes about from various causes, but one of the causes being ICU delirium. Now, when I attended the European Delirium Conference in September, there were pediatric intensivists, Dr. Heidi Smith from Vanderbilt University, and there were some very interesting means of assessing delirium because it was very difficult for toddler age, so sort of like under three-year-old trying to figure out their concentration levels and things like that. How does your hospital assess for delirium in, in pediatric? Yeah, that's a, a great question because um, we now know that children also suffer delirium. And this is, it sounds funny if those listening uh, are pediatric intensivists or adult intensivists, but a lot of people still say that children don't suffer delirium or they don't even know what delirium in children is. So, and that, I think that stems from a lot of things, but one is that it is not easy to know when a child is delirious because they don't talk. Some of them, especially the younger ones who are the, the ones at uh, uh, greater risk, especially below two years of age, they are, so they are pre-verbal. And also because delirium is more common in children with uh, previous uh, neurodevelopmental issues. So even if the child is a little older than two years of age, they don't talk or they have difficulty communicating. And um, also because one of the features that is really known about delirium in adults are hallucinations. And hallucinations are less frequent in children or they seem to be less frequent in children. And also because children can, usually cannot tell you if they're suffering from hallucinations. So when diagnosing delirium, we uh, focus on first uh, change in the baseline mental status that's pretty much 
what adult intensivists do as well. And then we need to find, uh, we need to look for inattention. That's one key feature of delirium, both in, in adults and children. And it's a lot harder to, to assess in children. So we use observational scales. There are several of them, the Grinnell assessment of pediatric delirium. There's the, the preschool and uh, pediatric confusion assessment method. There are several of them, and all of them have distinct ways of assessing inattention. I mean, for instance, the preschool confusing assessment methods uses cards with pictures that are shown to the child. You basically need to uh, look at the child and see if they're following the images when you pass them in front of their faces. So that's a pretty indirect way of assessing inattention, but is the way we have for, especially for toddlers and, and young children. So it's hard to diagnose. A lot of pediatric intensivists are not very aware of delirium. They're not very aware of the consequences and the consequences are better known in the adults. We now know that delirium in adults is, is linked to cognitive impairment post ICU in the, in the mid and long term. We don't know that if that happens in children yet. There are great studies going on and it's a great field of research. And in the past, I would say five years, it has received a lot of attention, but we're starting to understand how delirium works in, in children. I think you're, you're saying the pediatric uh, intensivists are not really appreciating or understanding delirium. I think that goes beyond pediatrics. I think there's quite a lot of not understanding delirium just in, in general, whether it be in primary care or whether it be in hospital-based care. I think in, in Scotland, we are very lucky in that we had the signed delirium guideline published with Professor McCulloch and others involved in creating it and it basically standardized care what you should and shouldn't be doing things that you should be doing in, in situations and I think that's helped and since that's been published here in Scotland you know, there has been a massive uh, kind of improvement in understanding in delirium but I also think that it's went beyond the UK as well I think it has had an impact through conferences like the EDA where it's been shared and talked about and it's a document that's based on purely qualitative research so although it's been published here there's no reason why a doctor in Spain or Italy or Germany or France can't equally apply it because there shouldn't be a cultural change to it these things work based on evidential research um, so I, I just wanted to make that point because delirium is a big, a big issue to me and, and I don't want the listeners thinking that this is purely a pediatric fault. It's a fault in all areas of medicine. These are, these are all as bad. No, no one is better apart from maybe geriatricians and psychiatrists. But yeah, obviously we have the, the corona COVID-19 crisis going on. Uh, that's changing how things are done in intensive care and the hospital wide i know in the uk we're just i think we're just getting back to allowing visitors in hospital uh what impact have you seen in a pediatric setting where i would think uh, these issues would be amplified with doctors in ppe or, or healthcare staff in ppe and the absence of those visitors or are the rules different in pediatrics has has your setting allowed visiting from family? So let me first say that unfortunately in this COVID crisis I have had to take care of both children and adults, critically ill both, and we've worked 
uh, differently in these two settings. I have had to take care of both adults and children at the same time uh, in different places. So with children in our unit, we have an, an open visiting policy, so parents can come and go whenever they want. And we basically stuck to that, but we usually, we, I mean, not usually, but always allow parents to just come and go and switch if the mom wants to stay out and the dad wants to come in they can just come and go so we stopped that we allowed for one parent to be inside with the child for the entire time but we told them not to just come and go all the time because of the risk of coming and going from the hospital and everything and then we have time for grandparents and other family members to come in and, and visit for a re reduced time in the afternoon and we stopped that as well, especially for, for grandparents since they, they were at a, at a higher risk. And fortunately, we didn't have very many children with, with COVID. We had a few. So I don't think there was a huge impact per se from the doctors wearing PPE and everything. And I think it was more uh, an impact uh, for the parents because, you know, it was a novel disease and... Um, we didn't really know what was going to happen with children if they would get very sick or, or less sick than adults, if they, if they would have a different kind of disease, as we are seeing now. And um, so I think it was a, a huge uncertainty for parents, and they were really scared. But besides that, I think it was uh, fairly similar to our uh, standard operating way. And with the children that didn't have COVID, we had them in a separate unit with um, a normal visiting policy. And so it was just like a, our regular ICU. And then we had the adults. And with the adults, as per a hospital policy, we wouldn't allow uh, family members to be with them, except for the ones that were in an end-of-life process. Because in those times, we would allow family members uh, in full PPE to come to the ICU and, and say goodbye. I think there was established in the very beginning when we didn't know much about the disease and when there were PPE shortages. And I know that a lot of other units that took care of adults started like that and then changed their policy, not to a fully open doors policy, like it should be standard in every intensive care unit around the world. And it suddenly isn't. But they did allow visits probably with full PPE, probably and um, and time restrictions, but more or less they allowed family members to visit all of their of all of their patients. But as per um, hospital policy, we didn't do that, and that's something I actually regret because it, it was really difficult to see people critically ill that could not talk to their uh, families because. When they were awake and when they weren't intubated, we would make uh, um, phone calls or use iPads and have them talk to their families. But once they were sedated, they were alone. And some of them said goodbye at some point. A lot of people came to the hospital alone because they were told they should be coming to the hospital alone and leave their families at home to reduce the risk of spread of the disease. And they said goodbye at some point before leaving their homes and never, they never went back. And that's actually a tragedy. Yep. Uh, unfortunately, lots of things have had to, had to change and a lot of things have been done to in, in the, the sort of auspices of keeping everybody safe that we'll not truly be able to see if they were justified until long after this. But uh, I did notice that you mentioned like your units 
kind of standard operating procedure is open visiting. Now, I can't speak for every unit here. Maybe some do, but certainly it's not the case on the unit I was on. And as far as I'm aware, it's not the case on most units here. I think it's quite a long visiting period in terms of of like hospitals here in general. But I think it's maybe like 12 till 8. I can't be specific, but mm -hmm. it would be that sort of mm -hmm. noon till 8. I think... I think that's... Um, it's more common with adult ICUs that they have somehow restricted visiting policies. Some of them very restrictive, some of some other less restrictive. But for pediatric ICUs and especially neonatal ICUs, I think the most common way to go is open doors because you have to consider that. I mean, children have rights and one of their rights is to be with their parents at all times. So I know there are some pediatric units around the world that don't have open doors visiting policies, but I think that that is changing quickly. And in the last few years, maybe in the past 10 years, most units are have become open doors, but it's different with the uh, adult ICUs, definitely. I think the only the only one I've I've heard of was was NICU, and I believe it was quite open. I can I couldn't speak to the the specifics on it because it wasn't me that was involved but I do have a sort of thing in my head that they were there at like four in the morning that wouldn't happen in a normal unit but I'm saying this because in my time of being a patient is getting close to 20 years now and I have seen the hospitals visiting changing it used to be two hours a day we used to have like two to three and then seven to eight and that's now been elongated on normal boards to two till eight and I think that's quite good because not everyone is capable of visiting at that time maybe because of work and schedules like that so I, I do think moving towards a more open visiting seems to be beneficial because the the arguments against it that all oh, people will just stay about and they'll visit for three or four hours from what I hear of units that have this open visiting they don't have that that the people don't just kind of go, oh, I can visit for six hours and just decide to visit for six hours. They generally visit for a similar sort of time that they would normally. And I think it's beneficial as well, even from a delirium point of view, in that if you're, maybe you, you go to your grandparents at five on a Friday, if they can't come in and visit you at five on a Friday, your brain might start acting out um, so kind of normalizing the behaviors of when you would see people and interact with people is very helpful, I think, from a sort of logical um, standpoint. But I'm going to circle it back to the, the PPE discussion. Uh, the reason I brought that up is I was admitted for an infection or suspected infection during the COVID crisis. It wasn't COVID, thankfully, but um, because of my immune system, I was treated as a COVID patient. I was put in the, the red side of the hospital. I was side isolating. Everybody came in gowned. And even as an awake, aware person, I was a bit on edge, a bit uncomfortable. I don't want to say uncomfortable because that's maybe not, but kind of off balance with not being able to see people. And that's me in a fully aware state. So it just felt that that would have problems 
you're saying pediatrically you're not seeing a particular change in that and I won't lie that surprised me because I would have thought it would have been amplified but it's good to hear that I'm I'm glad you know because that that was and will be until the end of this crisis one of my biggest worries is that this PPE is going to make delirium worse but it I'm probably sure it will in, made it in, worse yeah because you know generally you're become paranoid generally you think the the staff are against you and if you can't see people's faces it generally makes you more untrusting because if you can't see someone's face unfortunately that's just how our brain works but it also makes communication harder so you know some doctors i've seen a few here in spain and i've seen it also in the united states that they're starting to have their pictures pasted on the on their ppe so the patients can identify them but it still is not as good as having your face uncovered and because you lose a lot of nonverbal communication with that. Kate, who was in the first episode with a the guest, they have their pictures on their identification that comes in with them on the Phil PB. I was I always think that it's a helping factor because once you maybe get to the clean part, you know, if you're if you're in for COVID or whatever, and you you progress to the the clean side of the hospital where you're seeing more of people's faces, you go, oh yes, that's Kate or whoever and and you're kind of aware but it also helps when it comes to the recovery and the rehabilitation part post hospital where you come back and you go oh so that's that's Kate because I've seen her picture and that that's her so I, I think that's good I don't know that it'll have as much an impact in the admitted phase as it will have in the sort of post phase where you kind of have that pre-existing bond of trust because you go, oh, that was the person who looked after me. I remember a picture, remember his picture or whatever. Yeah, but whether that translates into pediatric, I don't know. Yeah. Well, a... There's also an interesting part of the pediatric part here is that we knew this from before, but that especially younger children, when their parents are wearing masks, just a mask, not full PPE, they usually don't smile because they don't recognize the faces if they don't see the, the part, the mouth part. If you smile to them, even if they, if you can tell, as an adult, you can tell if someone's smiling with a mask on because you see it in their eyes, but younger children cannot do that and they, they don't smile. If you just take off your mask and smile, then the child would smile back. And I think this is obviously amplified by being fully covered with a full PPE and everything. And also, I think uh, another big issue with this is, is communication, is wars among team members. And it's also, especially for older patients, the, one that, the ones that we had admitted for a while, they couldn't hear you talk because you had your face shield and your mask on and everything. So the voice was greatly muffled and they couldn't hear you talk. And it's also a huge problem. And it's also something that has been uh, related to delirium when, when uh, especially elderly patients don't have their hearing aids on or their glasses on, they, they tend to get disoriented and, and delirious. So I'm sure we're, we're going to see a huge delirium surge when the papers start coming out. I know there are some people looking this up. So we're going to see a lot of um, increased incidence of delirium during this, this period because also the infection per se seems to be especially delirogenic. It causes a lot of inflammation. It can target the central nervous system. So, and we're using a lot of uh, sedation 
patients have been put on ventilators for longer times than usual because we don't cannot give our best care to them because we're overwhelmed. And so I'm sure it's going to be up. It's the perfect recipe for post-intensive care syndrome, actually. COVID seems to be quite a lung-centric disease. I would imagine that would cause oxygen issues, which would exacerbate delirium as well. My, my only sort of saving grace in this situation is that our understanding of delirium is far greater than it was five years ago when I was in ICU. We kind of know the, the sort of classical post-ICU issues and that hopefully it will intervene earlier than we would otherwise and that perhaps services that were not being funded as much will be more funded. So the so like in, in the UK community psychiatric and primary psychiatric services will hopefully receive more more funding to deal with the PTSD, with the anxiety and depression issues that are going to exist post ICU from this condition, not just the sort of physical issues that will inevitably happen. But I think generally the physical stuff has been best understood and like we've kind of understood that oh we need to get people moving as early as we can and that these rehabilitation systems are maybe not extensions of like surgical protocols but they're very similar to to recovering from abdominal surgery and how you enact the physical rehabilitation but the psychiatric neurological recovery aspects that's became understood even to a sort of slight degree in recent years so we're now better equipped he says hopefully to deal with this issue do you think that's a likely outcome do you think these services are going to get more funding because it's going to be more work hopefully so i mean it's rarely that you hear in mass media people talking about delirium or or uh, the consequences of critical illness and i've seen it dozens of times since this pandemic started in newspapers on the tvs that's one of the silver linings, I guess, but it also makes me kind of mad because it's like, I mean, that's always been there. Critically ill people have suffered from that from forever and nobody has ever paid attention to that except for a few people. And now it's like COVID-19 is the only disease in the world that causes delirium or post-intensive care syndrome or hallucinations or whatever. And I think it, it's good that it has brought a lot of attention to this issue and that there are other doctors because mainly rehab physicians and uh, ICU physicians paid attention to this before the COVID-19 crisis. Now we have uh, all sorts of doctors finding staff with post-COVID patients and patients that have symptoms that don't disappear for two, three, four months that were probably there in other infections, in other viral pneumonias like influenza or adenovirus, and that are now being the focus of uh, the media and of, of, of research. Uh, thanks to COVID-19. So, but I don't believe these things are specific to COVID-19. I, I believe this, these things are specific of critical illness. They're the consequence of, of critical illness and what we do inside the ICU to treat critical illness. You bring up good points. And I know that a lot of my fellow survivors were extremely angry at the way the media has acted as if COVID is the only thing that causes post-intensive care issues. I'm quite a pragmatic thinker, I believe, and that I always see it as, as an, an opportunity. So yes, okay, cool. The media is looking at it like COVID is 
is the only thing in the world that, that causes these issues. In the end, if it gets funding to the units and funding to research, I don't particularly care if they, they think that as long as we, we get things moving forward. That's in the end what really matters to me. But media really, I would say, started talking about it once the Prime Minister got unwell and was put onto a unit. I don't know if they were reporting on it before then, but it certainly seems that that, that was a significant increase. And I don't think it would be popular if say, saying that, you know, it, it was a really good thing he was put on ICU, but it probably helped in that he was a high profile person who got it in a significant position that might actually be able to do things, whether he does, which... Hopefully, yeah. Whether he does, well, yes, ho- hopefully is, is the word, yeah. but I'm not sure whether it will be in the case. But I always think anything that increases the profile of, of ICU is is going to be good, whether it be a famous person who has been in ICU and suddenly goes, actually, this isn't like the films. You don't just wake up, the tube comes out and you just walk home, which that's, that is one of my, my greatest pet peeves in history is how ICU is portrayed in, in television and films. Obviously, prior to my ICU admission, I thought, I see you. You just you're just sleeping for for a bit, and then you just you just go home. The reality of the situation is is not anything like that. And it would be nice if if the media decided to portray a sort of realistic view of the situation. But I doubt that will ever happen because it's not interesting. You know, it's it's really cool for a guy to be in a coma for four years, stand up and shoot twelve people. But it does it does kind of make you feel a bit inferior. Oh, it, it took yeah. me three weeks to get back walking more than five meters but i think you know this guy on the he was doing somersaults and that but i think i've got i've got sidetracked with my thinking sometimes i get tangented off in my in my own wee world there's also one thing that um, has happened thanks to covid it's like i know of uh, a few units here in spain that have gotten full-time psychologists on board thanks to funding that has come out of nowhere uh, thanks to to this crisis or some units have gotten uh, physiotherapists full time also and those are good things but those are things that not only covid patients need every patient that every patient that's that has been admitted to an icu needs a, a physiotherapist or a psychologist in the team and the truth at least here in spain is that that's not the norm by far yeah, well, well, hearing that physio isn't a standard aspect of your your ICU is, uh, I'm I'm speechless at that. I, my unit had physio as a standard. They have a an ICU based physio, maybe even two now. Um, I think there's now part time psychology input. Although I can't, I'm not up to date. But uh, that was relatively recent. But I'll. You know, I always thought surely a physio was part of the ICU team. I think that's sort of one of the key aspects because it doesn't matter what brought you in, you're you're going to need physio, whether it be a surgical thing or an infective or an inflammatory thing. You you're going to need physical rehab, especially if they've intubated you. But uh, it's always interesting to me to hear how things are done in other countries because obviously. I've never, thankfully, had to visit a hospital in another country. 
although I have frequented many of them in my own country, we, we kind of all do things in a very similar way, although I've only been on one ICU ward. Um, so it, it's very interesting to see how other countries do things. So even listening, I know you mentioned uh, Dale earlier, interesting seeing how John Hopkins units do things, how they get people moving when they're tubed, which is kind of just, but isn't done here. And when I talk, it seems to be that the thought is that there's a lot of risk in it. So uh, I always kind of wonder, is it that we use different things? Do we use different intubation tubes or, or things like that? Is that why it is? Is there, is there tubes more flexible and ours are more rigid or something? What, what is the, the risk? I don't know the answer. I don't know if anybody here really knows the answer, but it's interesting to see how three or four countries, we all have the same sort of intensive care issues. We all have yeah. you know, pneumonias that put people in ICU, but we all try and solve the puzzle differently. And I always think that's kind of strange because if John Hopkins have solved a problem in getting people early mobilization, why are we not all doing it? Because as a, an ICU survivor, I know the earlier you move, the better. The earlier you're moving, the less muscle mass you lose, which means the recovery is, is less difficult. So if they've solved the puzzle, why are we all trying to, if there's a nice round wheel, why are we trying to make our own round wheel? If there's, I completely agree. Yeah. But I think it, there is, there are of course always financial issues that um, are differ from country to country, but there's also something that's sometimes even tougher to overcome than financial issues. And that's culture change because we've, we're now moving from saving lives to improving survivorship. That's the focus is, is changing both in adults and pediatric ICUs. And a lot of people are just comfortable with uh, heavily sedated patients that are not moving. And then we cannot extubate this guy because he's so weak. And why is he so weak? We don't know. Just a, it's what we've been doing for a long time. People who are heavily sedated get very weak. It's something we have to deal with. It's incorporated into critical illness. I mean, when you get critically ill, you're supposed to, to lay still. It's better if you don't breathe and um, if you don't move. And then it, it comes with it that you're extremely weak. You cannot move. You cannot talk. You cannot swallow. You cannot think straight. That's one of the huge things we have to overcome. And it's, we, we need to move from that culture to keeping patients awake, pain-free, delirium-free, with a good sleep and with their families close by and breathing for themselves as, as much as we can. And that's already been studied and it has shown that it saves lives in adult patients. It, has been, it was published in 2019 or 2018. I, I can't remember. It's called the A2F bundle. Uh, there are more and more pediatric units that are incorporating it too. And there's a lot of people working on it, especially Sabna Kachakar from Hopkins and uh, Karen Chung from McMaster and all of other people around the world that are working with specific programs to keep children awake, without delirium, with their parents closed, moving, sleeping well. And probably in the pediatric field, we need a couple more years or three years to have reliable research that shows that that improves outcomes. But I mean, I don't really need research. I know children do better if they're awake, if they are not intubated when they don't need to be intubated, which is a lot of the time. 
if they are not delirious, if they sleep well, if they have their parents with them all the time, if they walk early, if they get out of bed, if they can play, because play is a, an essential part of a child's development and children can't play in the ICU. It seems obvious, but it's a huge difference from their normal life. Children are used to playing and they cannot play, they cannot attend school. So we need to focus on um, that cultural change to center the our sites on survivorship because the truth is that we are doing really well at keeping people alive but we're doing poorly at keeping at, at helping people survive and overcome critical illness there's a couple of things there that I elaborate on so you say that a lot of pediatric cases are intubated do you think it's a sort of knee-jerk reaction either at the intensive care stage or perhaps at the emergency room or accident emergency i don't know what, what your country would would call yours we would call it emergency department now do you think that when a child's brought in that's really acutely unwell the sort of early reaction is intubate so we can gain control take away certain aspects so that the puzzle's easier to solve do you think that's the case that the knee jerk is intubate really sick kids so that we have better control well, I think that was the case a few years ago, and I think we're moving away from that. The, the, I would say the, the mainstay of, of critical illness in the pediatric world is bronchiolitis. If you ask people that were caring for children with bronchiolitis 30 years ago, they either had a nasal cannula or they were intubated and heavily sedated and paralyzed. And now we're with newer devices and, and with better knowledge, we're more and more avoiding intubation and bronchiolitis. And it's become, I wouldn't say exceptional, but it's infrequent, I would say, that we intubate a child with bronchiolitis, whereas 30 years ago it was very frequent. So it has come with time that people have, let's say, dared to not intubate children and wait for longer times, even if the children are breathing very quickly and, and that may make you think they're going to tire out and stop breathing. But with time, we're seeing that if you let them breathe fast, they actually almost never tire out. And if they do, they're in an ICU where you can intubate them. So you can just let them breathe very rapidly and just let them improve. You can avoid a great deal of intubations with that. It's the same with other uh, things we do in intensive care. It's with uh, sedatives. It's the same with, I don't know, chest tubes and a lot of other things that uh, were thought to be mandatory, let's say, a few years ago. And we're now seeing that are probably sometimes harmful. Some other times don't really improve outcomes and some, some other times are really necessary. So a lot of focus is also changing to that. And there's this movement, I, I would like to call it, that started on Twitter that's called Sentensivism, that's Sen and Intensivism put together. It's a word created by Matt Shuba from the Cleveland Clinic, and he actually had a, a paper published called the Sentensivist Manifesto a few days back, where people are, I wouldn't say that the focus is doing nothing, but safely doing nothing. I mean, it, I think we need to train doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals that it is okay sometimes, probably a lot of the time to just do nothing. Just watch and think and see how the patient fares without intervening too much. Because as, year go, as years go by, we, we're uh, seeing that a lot of interventions that we thought were life-saving are actually harmful. So that's something that we need to work on a lot in the pediatric ICU. And thankfully, there are a lot of uh, teams out there around the world that are 
focusing in reducing intubations and keeping children awake with minimal sedation and avoiding delirium, avoiding withdrawal syndrome, which is a big issue in pediatric ICUs as well. I think we're moving forward. So I wouldn't say intubation is a knee-jerk reaction right now because we have evolved. Undoubtedly, it was a few years back. And I hopefully will see in the near future that we're moving away from invasive procedures and focusing on what is has been proved to be best for patients and yeah, moving away from, from invasive procedures. So another thing is obviously adult intensive care is moving, you know, a lot of these issues about reducing intubation, reducing sedation and these things. These are things that have already, well, hurdles that have already at least partially been overcame in adult ICU. Do you think that that helps pediatric and that it's been proven in adult care? So will that make it easier to make it policy or have research done that will prove it? Because if if X works in adult ICU, then there's a good chance that it'll work in terms of like sedation and early mobilization. I know like drugs and physiological issues will be different. Definitely. I mean, um, there's this saying that a lot of pediatricians know that children are not small adults, but the truth is that a lot of pediatric knowledge is inferred from the adult studies, especially in critical care, because fortunately children don't get critically ill very often. And, and uh, us as pediatric intensivists uh, care for children from zero days of age to 18 years of age or even more. So the disease spectrum is really heterogeneous. And so that means that we don't have big numbers of patients with the same condition that we can study. So a lot of what we do is derived from, from adult studies. If something gets proven in adults, I'm not saying it's, that's a reason to immediately start doing it in pediatrics, but it usually serves as a motivation to study that same thing in, in the pediatric population. So, and it happens the same with drugs. For instance, a, a drug that works well with adults is then approved for the use uh, for its use in, in pediatrics because it works in adults and, it, and it's shown to be safe in adults. So it works more or less like that. There are studies that have shown that all these things that we've talked about improve outcomes in adults. There's a lot of research now being uh, conducted in children with uh, these same uh, interventions like you know, minimal sedation, early mobilization, all these things that... Uh, in the end, what their effect is post-intensive care syndrome prevention, because that's what we need to do. A lot of models of post-intensive care follow-up and uh, support, and it's been shown to work. But truth is that as far as we know right now, aftercare is not as good as prevention. So that's what we need to to work in in the, in the pediatric world. Is to it, We need to improve our knowledge in the, all of these preventive strategies to see if they are actually working in, in, in the pediatric population and we can decrease the incidence of post-intensive care syndrome. Yeah, obviously not having people in ICU is much better than creating a service that really helps them recover from ICU. So there's certainly things like the sepsis protocols that exist, certainly in, well, I can only say for Scotland because I don't, I don't know like people that are showing sepsis in the emergency department get the sepsis protocol antibiotics within an hour and that's been proven to to greatly reduce critical complications so obviously more things like that hitting the various aspects better surgical procedures and techniques will reduce 
the sort of surgical aspects of ICU as well. So I think I think in a lot of aspects we are sort of hitting these issues, but from a very specific viewpoint. So the the emergency department are improving their reaction to things like sepsis and the surgical teams are using better techniques that are less likely to cause complications and they're given preloaded antibiotics when there's suspected infections or they're working in areas that are highly likely to get infected and things like that. So I think perhaps the problem is that we're we're kind of looking at these problems from a system to system viewpoint. So it's kind of like like my treatment. So I have a lot of autoimmune conditions that affect very different parts of my body. It wasn't until a couple of years ago I spoke to my hematology team and I'm like, I've got seven autoimmune conditions. Now I'm getting this weird fever things. Is there somebody that I can go and see that will look at the puzzle as a as a whole? Because, you know, like my my gastro is looking at it from a gastro point. The hematologists are looking at it from a hematology point. Infectious diseases are looking at it from an immune weakness point. But maybe there's something systemic here. There doesn't seem to be, but in terms of how we look at this as a sort of hospital setting, we maybe need to look at the problem not as like individual departments as what can intensive care do, what can the emergency department, but maybe as a more, even including primary care, would there be some sort of intervention of someone who's maybe went to their doctors and they're maybe looking like they're they're on their way to being septic? Could we, I, I know there, there is looking through intermediate care teams here to get like IV bolus antibiotics in the community. And I think that that might also have a big impact. Do you think there there needs to be a less departmental look at it and more of a sort of healthcare system as as large to solve the problem? Definitely. I mean, um, the first thing with critical illness is prevention because once you you have a critical illness, I mean, it's there. And what we do when once it's there is not worsen it and try to to accelerate recovery, but in the pediatric world, I mean, it, things like vaccines and universal healthcare and obviously poverty and all that stuff is uh, needs to be looked at from a, through a system-wide prisma, I would say, and, and uh, tackle everything at the same time. I mean, if, if you can prevent disease, you will avoid hospital visits, ICU admissions, and all the complications that come after. You actually probably end up saving a lot of money too, but... I mean, that needs to be taken seriously by uh, politicians. And, uh, you know, maybe you don't need to build 5, 000, uh, a 5,000 bed hospital with uh, the best technology on earth. Maybe you better invest that money on primary care and uh, preventive policies. And you'll probably save a lot of money and save a lot of troubles to people that end up in intensive care with critical conditions. I think the problem lies in the fact that you rely people to be forward thinking and invest money with a future saving uh, as opposed to a sort of instant return in some form so Mm -hmm. you'll invest this money and you might not see the benefits for four or five years but that after those four or five years there'll be a significant improvement and unfortunately it seems that we don't have very many forward thinking people in real significant upper positions because they're trying to win votes they're you know they're 
trying to get re-elected and spending large sums of money with no sort of immediate, oh, here's here's the success, is very difficult. I don't know how, how we sort that problem, but certainly societal issues need to, to be addressed. So universal health care. I don't think anyone of a reasonable mind can can say that that's not a good thing and that why should people who don't have a lot of money or even happen to have just been made unemployed or something like that, circumstances out with their sort of doing, be forced to choose between going to hospital to get their life saved or live a life in debt. It's It doesn't... Doesn't make sense. Yes, yes, yes. I, you know... I, it's it's totally illogical to me and it I, I think the countries that don't have it they only look at it that way because they've never really had a significant experience of of sort of universal health care they're they they suffer from from what uh, doctors get and that it is the status quo it's what they're used to and they don't want to change which brings me back to one of the earlier discussions in that uh, particularly with things like paralytics and sedations and things like that is the biggest issue is getting people to move away from, well, this is how we've always done it. And that's that's one of the biggest hurdles in, in every aspect of life, not just medicine, is even when you're showing people, here's all these studies that say, if you only use as much sedation as you need for the patient to be comfortable, not flailing about or endangering anybody, that actually that's quite quite successful quite useful because i know i know i'm a rare or a strange case and that when i was weaned off the sedation i was extremely comfortable intubated i didn't i wasn't distressed or anything like that and i understand that's a very strange uh, situation so i can't speak from the waking up and going and then trying to to pull the tube or anything like that but there's probably more people like me than we really know it's just that we sedate people so much that, that we never really are aware of that i don't know if if i had been in a john hopkins hospital if i would have been sedated less for a shorter period of time and then able to get mobilized earlier and that might have helped me physically in recovering maybe probably not because i was quite unwell with flu sepsis so probably not but it's interesting from my point of view i understand a lot of people are distressed when they're intubated but that wasn't my experience and i'd like to think i'm not strange or unique although medically speaking i'm usually looked at that way but overcoming that that issue of people don't want to change how they do things because you know we do this and we get 80 percent survival so why would we want to change that's quite good well maybe we can get to 95 percent survival or maybe even better, we can get to a point where survival isn't the statistic we use, it's quality of life. I think or... that's a key, a key point, yeah. With nope. sedation, is it, it's one of those treatments that we give, and a lot of times we give it for the comfort of the treating team and not the patient. And it's actually probably a lot of people that are uncomfortable with a tube are actually distressed because what sedation is causing and sedating them deeper is not fixing the problem. It's just kicking the ball farther away and then finding it further down the path. Again, the problem is still there. So, and there's actually a study, it was done in Denmark, I think. It was published a few months back, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it's called a non-set trial uh, where they used no sedation 
in patients with that, that were mechanically ventilated and they did just fine. I mean, nothing happened. It is true that it also, when, when you don't sit at a patient that's mechanically ventilated, you need resources. You need enough nurses. You need the family to be there. You need respiratory therapists. You need physiotherapists. You need a lot of people around the patient. But if that's the right way to do wearing, why are we not doing it? Well, I don't, I don't necessarily think that we've we've proven that it's the the right way i don't think we have we certainly know using less sedation than we currently use works that's kind of i believe from from my understanding and what i've i've looked at and listening to the the people who are more in no and intensive care than me that that seems to be proven that this is better whether it then leads to no sedation who knows my feeling is that I don't know if that that would work. I, I would have to. I, I would have to see. Some people need it, and some people don't. And this study in Denmark, some people dismissed it. These people were just crazy. They had people with tubes in their mouths without sedation. Well, they were actually being given analgesia, and, and patients didn't experience more pain than the ones that were being sedated. And I'm not saying that should that should be standard of care, but the same reasons that are being used to fight against the no sedation way let's say but we're used against the less sedation way a few years back and people said that patients with less sedation would would have more ptsd they would be frightened and scared and then they would pull their tubes out or their central lines and the truth is that's not true i mean and and actually people with lighter sedation seem to have less ptsd than people with heavier sedation so whether it's no sedation or light sedation i don't know and it's probably not the same thing for everyone works I don't think it's that, it's never that in medicine, but, you know, knowing that sedation is not going to fix most of the problems that you're trying to fix with sedation is a a huge step to make. I think you kind of hit a very key point there in that every patient, particularly I would say in ICU, because ICU covers the hospital-wide level of issues. Yes, sure, you will have a lot of pneumonias, but there'll be surgical complications, there might be gastro issues that have evolved to become critical and and other aspects so you're not just treating one type of thing that the wards would do so there's there shouldn't be a standard procedure in that every patient shouldn't be heavily sedated equally every patient shouldn't be light sedated and if it comes to it probably every patient shouldn't be no sedated that these things will still need clinical judgment there won't ever be a case where you just go right patients in Let's stick a tube in them, give them painkillers, and then we'll, we'll decide from there. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Dr. Morgan had said ICU was birthed in Denmark, in Copenhagen, through the, the polio crisis. So it's very interesting to see that they're still pushing the, the kind of forward barrier in yet another pandemic situation. But now kind of having thought about it, I think probably no sedation makes more sense to me and that surely there'll be less mental health complications when a person's fully aware because from me sort of we don't know yet but yeah but from a logical understanding of what i know from having had delirium and what i know from having attended academic things and read books and studied up on is that it seems to be the loss of cognitive awareness that seems to cause a lot of problems not being able to identify the causes of issues so for me not being awake when central lines were put in so i thought my neck was being cut because essentially it was somebody was was 
it was. But, yeah. well, it was essentially cut my neck open to put a tube in. Uh, and the same with arterial lines in my wrist. I thought my wrists were being cut open. And it was that lack of cognitive awareness of what was going on in the real world and purely relying on the physiological stimulus that I was having. So now that my brain's had a few minutes to sort of run it through my head, it seems it seems more logical to have no sedation. But obviously that's not always going to be the safest thing to do depending on of course, yeah. And what the I'm sure there's the people can, that cannot tolerate it, and there's people that are too sick to tolerate it, obviously. But that's one thing that's there and that has been proven to be safe and doable. So maybe it's, at some well, point we'll move in that direction. It seems like another sort of stage on it, and that if someone is maybe too sick or doesn't tolerate non invasive intubation, but is maybe not sick enough. Or, or unwell enough that they need sedated intubation, that there's, there maybe is a group of people in that sort of ground where you're actually hurting them by sedating them, or maybe not hurting them, that's maybe, maybe a wrong way to word it, but making it harder on them, and that if you keep them aware, maybe they're, maybe they're recovery. And obviously, the more aware the patient is, the more they can communicate with you about things so if the person's not sedated maybe they're using the tap board like i did but they'll say actually i've now got pain in my back or a pain in my that will allow for for easier diagnostics and investigations and i certainly would think that scanning with a patient that's intubated but not sedated would be safer and that they're aware because i do know i believe they tried to do an mri on me while I was under as soon as they tilted me flat I just became unstable the only reason I know that is because on my recovery path I had to get another MRI and they said oh yeah I remember the last time you were in you we can get you into the machine and I'm like I don't remember sure. uh, if you if you say so uh, I kind of have a vague recollection of anything that's that's in in reality but another kind of aspect of of ICU care is obviously things that you might have done while delirious or things like that you're kind of told about and there's maybe a sort of I certainly know in my case when I was in a high dependency I don't know if that's something that exists in yours it's generally the stage before or the stage after ICU a sort of mm-hmm. uh, level two I became really quite paranoid prior to to being admitted to ICU and I was acting you know, kind of abusive and and such. And when I was told about this after it, the HDU staff didn't mean anything by it. They were just saying, oh, you're, you're looking better or, or whatever. But it really hit me because the aware, awake me would never act like that. But obviously at that point I was, I think my oxygen stats were 80. So I was, I was pretty oxygen deprived and a bit hot it, but it, it does bring a sort of shame you and that you're like oh i acted like that even though i had had no control over it the the sort of functional brain was not driving the boat at that point and that's that's i think that's another thing that kind of needs to be understood although it probably doesn't necessarily translate to pediatrics as much i think that would be a very much an adult or perhaps a a sort of later pediatric sort of young adult teen Mm -hmm. thing where you're you kind of told about it i think it's something that needs to be handled carefully 
and that although you're you know you're maybe happy to see that they've recovered and that they're doing better that you need to be very careful in how you word it how you and even if it is not appropriate but if it's going to be beneficial to speak to them because I know in my case I would have been much happier if they hadn't told me I don't know do you think or is that a is that a British thing no I'd say that definitely keeping patients awake helps them integrate the things that happen and even even if they're awake sometimes the sole effect of the critical illness does some funny things to the brain that would make patients behave in an awkward way or in an inappropriate way sometimes even but if they have been awake and they can remember most of what has happened and here also diaries icu diaries play a, a great role i would say and families as well because they can recollect what has happened and tell the patient what what has been happening that helps integrate the full experience in the in the hospital and in, especially in the icu so that people can make sense of what has happened in their lives because i can't imagine it's not the case with my patients but i can't imagine being i don't know writing in a word document in my office and then the next thing i know i'm in the hospital with a tube in my mouth and with wires coming out of my body i mean that's a huge trauma and it's very sudden and if you have if you have not been able to live through it how are you going to make sense of this thing that has completely turned your life around there's a there's a lot of things there obviously i didn't have an icu diary my ward adopted it maybe a year after i was in icu but it, it icu diaries weren't such a big thing sort of five years ago, certainly here, but having worked in the post-intensive care clinic as a volunteer for a year, I did see that the ICU diaries are massively beneficial. And I know that Kate's unit in Plymouth use them and they seem to be extremely effective. And I do, from a sort of logical point of view as a patient, I do think that they must be extremely beneficial. And my friends who have had them certainly share that sort of opinion. I think that helping to bridge the gap and maybe even bring reasoning to certain aspects of the delirium. So if in my ICU diary I had said, oh, on the 26th there was a, or maybe not the 26th, the 28th, we put in central lines, then I might have been like, oh, yeah. Because I had to I had to figure a lot of the aspects of what I think was in my delirium related to the reality from scars that were left behind on my body and from subsequent understanding of how ICU is from visits that I had after for surgical reasons. So my ICU, or well, I keep calling it my ICU. It's a force of habit. The ICU in which I was a patient, I had been in it prior to my ICU admission for surgical because I am immunodeficient. And so now pretty much after surgery, if there's a bed in ICU, I get put in it because things could go bad quickly. They usually don't, but they like for me to be in that nice situation where where there's lots of people looking at me and if things start to go wonky, that things happen quickly. And so I was fortunate in that I had been in this ICU and I had been in the exact same bed in the ICU. So when I woke up, it was not a weird alien (laughs) environment to me. Obviously, that's not going to be the case all the time, but I certainly think that the ICU diaries seem to be like I've, I've never heard anyone either 
through the clinic or from the people I talk to online. I've never had someone saying, oh, do you know what? My seared diary, it was absolutely rubbish. It didn't help me. It always seems to bring context. And that's that's the kind of key thing because certainly in my case, I remember the day after Christmas, I remember my joints hurting and I remember things being painful and having issues. And I remember going to the out of hours team and basically being told I could be admitted or I could try the anti-inflammatories. And due to my extensive history of being admitted at that point, I was naive enough to think that an outpatient treatment could help and that I was going to, I was going to roll, roll the dice on, on these anti-inflammatories working. I don't remember taking any of the anti-inflammatories because the next thing I remember of actual memory is waking up in ICU. So I, I do have that that feeling. And obviously without the ICU diary, I don't have, have real context for it. I have things that my parents told me, things that I figured out from sort of physiological issues, you know, the scars on my neck and things like that. So I, I would imagine an ICU diary would bring a lot of closure for those issues. And I would think that that closure, because it would happen quite early on, <clears throat> pardon me, in recovery, maybe, I don't know, three months post-ICU, that that would probably have a significant impact on the mental health issues as well. I think that a lot of the anxiety issues that I had and the PTSD issues came from the not knowing. The problem was that although we suspect flu to be the, the cause of the sepsis, we never got to a, a root cause, which that's not great because it means every time in the December time, although it's lesser now, I always go, well, am I going to get hit with this again? And I imagine I imagine this December, it's going to be very hard for me, being as this pandemic is is going to be pretty tough, unless some sort of magical vaccine comes out and we manage to get 80% of the world's population vaccinated, which if we do, that'll be a, a particularly guild magic trick that, yeah, it's it's going to be hard. And it's I reckon it's going to be hard for a lot of survivors, even non COVID survivors coming back to their anniversaries because mines will be this will be five years this year last year wasn't so bad the first two or three years I had panic attacks and thought this is I'm going back in it, it didn't happen thankfully I was never admitted for anything which is kind of weird because in the winter I do tend to get infections but thankfully none of them progressed to needing to see doctors and things like that but uh, yeah. So, do you think? So, we'll, we'll word this in a question. I've talked. I've talked for a very long time there, but I'm now going to word a question. Hopefully, do you think that the COVID crisis will have a significant mental health impact in people that have made it out in ICU and will be worried one year, two years, three years, eighteen months, whatever post recovery that they may well have another visit? I think it's going to be, uh, as I said before, it's the perfect storm for delirium and for post-intensive care syndrome because of the characteristics of the virus and because of the way we're taking care of patients with uh, the full PPE, with uh, restrictive visiting policies and everything. And then because um, families have 
been away and have been in lockdown. And, and because in these times, you a lot of people have come out of the ICU and walked straight, not walked, but been taken straight home and stayed home for weeks or months with the uh, clinics and the primary care services being drowned in COVID patients that have not been able to, to take care of, of survivors. And then I also think a lot about what these people have seen in the hospital. I mean, it's the truth is that in the hardly hit places like Madrid, for instance, people that have been in the hospital or in the ICU have seen people die. And some of them, quite a lot of people die. Even if you don't, if, if they haven't gotten really sick, they have seen people get really sick or die. And that's something that you have to live through. And actually, you they have had to live through it without their families or any support. And then they go back home and, and, and there's not, the support of the community is not there because everyone is locked down in their in their houses. And, and then there's not good primary care and there's, there's not rehabilitation services because everyone's taking care of, of COVID patients. So I'm sure in one, two, three years time, I don't know because I don't know how long is, is it going to last, but I'm sure that this will come up at some point some way or another we'll, we'll start to see things that we haven't seen before for sure just to pivot on a more staff-based question so obviously you said madrid is quite hard hit with covid how big of an impact do you think that will be on the the healthcare professional teams in icu who maybe in a normal time you're maybe having one in five one in six one in four patients dying when that rate has vastly increased in the covid time and they're maybe providing more end of life care they're maybe holding people's hands while they die how big of an impact will that have on the healthcare system in terms of the effects on staff's mental well-being as well as team dynamics it's going to have a huge impact one thing is the numbers i mean there has been a lot of deaths that were preventable and that's one big thing but also a lot of these people that have died have died in in i don't know how to put it but not in the best of situations they have died surrounded by strangers in full ppe instead of surrounded by their families and that's definitely going to have a toll on teams and then also we've been working very long hours for months and it's also very physical too because you get on full ppe and then you start working and then three four hours go by and you're soaked in, in sweat and you're extremely tired. And then you get out of the hospital and, and what you see is not the normal world because everyone is in, in their houses and there's no one outside. You cannot have your own spaces of, can, not in Spain, for instance, we couldn't go out for sports even. We couldn't go out for a run. That's going to have a massive impact, I'm sure. Yeah, obviously, I'm kind of intertwined in the the ICU world now a lot of staff so I do sort of see the effects and if it's affecting the sort of I don't want to call them hardened ICU staff but people who have chose ICU as their their vocation have a certain you know they have to have a certain expectation of that there is going to be death it's not a high death rate but in this COVID crisis you're having people brought into the ICU team who didn't choose that you're maybe getting I don't know gastro doctors and things like that working in ICU who are maybe not as well equipped or I mean that's that's not 
the right way of saying it there. They didn't make the choice to go into a department that is as high risk or or as likely to be exposed to death in the frequency that the ICU is. Do you think that the addition of these team members will cause the sort of established team to provide more support for them because they will they will need it, but that that will also stretch the teams further mentally and sort of not predispose them, but make them more likely to have sort of mental health issues with dealing with supporting more colleagues, maybe colleagues that they don't know particularly well, as well as dealing with the increased rates of death and acutely ill people. And then the the physical issues of breaking down from having masks and other things, pressure sores from masks and other aspects of things to keep them safe? I don't think that anyone is specially equipped to deal with death, but it is true that ICU physicians and uh, nurses and and nurse practitioners and ICU staff in general are at least more in contact with death and end of life. And it is true that uh, this crisis has disrupted the entire hospital systems and has just had cardiologists in the ICUs and, and, and surgeons in the wards and everyone's mixed up and out of their places. And I think that's going to uh, definitely have a toll on everyone. But it's also true that, at least in my hospital, and I know that several other hospitals are, are doing this too, that the mental health teams have uh, worked from very early on supporting their colleagues. And for instance, in, in, in my hospital, from the very first days, there were mindfulness sessions and, and a team supporting ICU staff and non-ICU staff as well. I think that has helped a lot, but I'm, I think we're just as it's going to happen with, uh, with people that have recovered from the disease and with other people that have not gone through the disease directly, but have been affected by it as we have all had been affected because we have had to stay home and, and stop working. We've feared for our lives or, or the lives of those we, we love. And that, that only that, ha- it has just that, it has a huge toll. But if you've been exposed to it and you've seen it firsthand and, and, and you're not used to this sort of a uh, war that goes on in the ICUs, maybe you are more vulnerable to mental health issues further down the road. I don't know, but it is true that we've had a lot of support and I'm thankful for that because our colleagues have been really supportive. And even if at some point we didn't even think it was necessary because we were too submerged in the care of the patients, but they were available and when we needed them, we just called them and they came and then it was nice and and I think it was really helpful and and hopefully it might prevent mental health problems from developing in the the future yeah I do know that in my the primary hospital that I have most of my care in there were the ICU psychologists created a sort of staff welfare program that seemed to be well received from the staff that I know and that seemed to be done quite early on even though as we kind of discussed before we started recording my particular area although we have been hit by covid we haven't been hit really really hard i don't think at any point we were under great stress that's maybe a little there were obviously it had great stress on it but i don't think we were ever pushed to like bursting point in terms of sort of covid patients so we were we were very lucky that way but 
the programs did seem to seem to exist in terms of supporting staff mental health and i do know that they managed to get a ping pong table in which i was quite envious of because it's uh, the one time i had to go to to a clinic in the hospital i saw the ping pong table that's in what used to be the cafe i was like oh there's big signs only staff beyond this point and i was like oh no okay i've got to say my problem is if i don't write down things i'll then immediately forget them Uh, i can only hold on to one thought at a time whatever it was it's clearly left the building do you have anything you want to ask me is there any anything you wish to know Mm. from me a a patient i think i know a lot actually because from from what you tweet out and what we've talked and it's actually you say things that a lot of patients say about icu and about delirium and and I don't have a specific question, actually. No. So obviously, I'm I'm quite a prolific tweeter, uh, as as that's that's how I kind of got noticed. Although I have slowed down during the COVID period because have, yeah. uh, mainly because I don't really have anything particularly useful to say, and and I find you shouldn't just say things to say things. So obviously, I have written poems during that time, and I have you know written ones for friends that I've sent to them directly. But when there's a big issue, when, when it's World Delirium Awareness Day, you will hear from me a lot. If I'm at a conference or if people are asking me to talk about something, I'll be there and I'll be tweeting with the, the, the very best. So how useful do you think social media, in particularly something like Twitter, has been in helping increase understanding and awareness or even purely from uh, becoming aware of other intensive care specialists around the world? Do you think it's a, is a good tool for putting you in contact with people who are maybe of a similar interest? Yeah, I think it's a, a great help. I mean, it, it's been, I've been a trainer for more than 10 years now, but I've only used it professionally for the past, I would say two to three years. And um, I mean, I've had had contact with people that I would have never met if it hadn't been for Twitter. People that I'm now doing research with or, or writing papers or, or going to conferences with or just sharing interests and, and also meeting patients like you. And, and I think that's a very good part of social media. But there's also another part and I think we've seen it clearly now in the COVID crisis that it also, especially Twitter is a huge amplifier. And it amplifies good things, but it also amplifies not very good things as well. And it, I think it has played both roles regarding information about COVID and uh, also within the medical community, not among the general population only, but within the medical community. It has given voice to flawed studies, for instance, or flawed ideas that have spread widely. It has also given voice to people that say that COVID doesn't exist, that um, an excuse to control is and blah, 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 and whatever. So um, I think I find social media extremely helpful, but I guess that like with everything in life, you need to be careful and, and, and use them wisely, I would say. I think Twitter particularly, a good analogy is like a surgical scalpel. So for for very specific tasks, you know, opening people up to operate on them, it's very useful. So for sharing research, proper 
proper research papers and, and things like the Rehab Legend campaign that promote great works that people are doing is very useful. But equally, it is in essence a very sharp knife. And if you use it wrongly, you're going to hurt yourself. And the problem is that Twitter is like a million people all running about with scalpels. Scalpels are very good in a trained surgeon's hand, but in random person, they're, they're not. And obviously things like 5G being the cause of, of Corona has, has propagated through social media that it wouldn't have necessarily otherwise. But equally, the good works at John Hopkins probably wouldn't have reached you know Europe as true. quickly and, and easily if there hadn't been Twitter or things like that. Another, we would have met if it weren't for in, Twitter. In, indeed. <laughs> every single guest on this podcast would not have, have been here otherwise, which is kind of sad, but also good. You know, social media does have positive aspects. It's not just nasty people saying nasty things although YouTube is quite like that. The, the other kind of main social media that I've found I think is useful medically is TikTok, which might be a, a strange one, but having spent a lot of time on there, there are actually quite a lot of very, well, from as well as I can ascertain, some very good doctors talking some very good sense and a lot of statistical researchers and COVID researchers on there that are using that platform to present cases and datas, but also intertwining it with doing sort of comedy things, which I think it helps them sort of amplify it because more people are watching. They're going, oh, that's that guy that did that funny thing. Oh, he's talking about this. Oh, maybe I'll listen to this. And so information propagates better that way. And it's 60 seconds. That's good. I think most people's attention spans can can expand to 60 seconds even even me with my my concentration issues that i clearly can't hold on to a question that i had for more than two minutes of talking but yeah i think everybody's kind of understood that youtube is great for using for education and that you can record videos like i did an interview with glasgow university's intensive care education unit for their masters in critical care i did an interview with them it's up on youtube everybody can watch it that's great but we also need to think about other things like twitter i don't really think instagram i don't really think that's where there is although i'm sure there's a lot of doctors that would disagree with me because i hear that there's quite a big culture over there i just don't think that's a great environment for it but i think i also think that these aspects need to be integrated into medical education as well (laughs) There should be a sort of social media 101 so that the sort of newly graduated doctors feel comfortable but also know where the limits are and what they should do and what is not just good for them career-wise but also allows them to contribute but not endanger themselves or endanger patient information and things like that. Do you think that would be a, a beneficial thing in Chris, it's, it's actually part of, a, of our educational pro- program for residents and fellows. We actually have a talk that I give to residents and fellows. about. It's mainly focused on Twitter, but it's, it's about social media and healthcare. And I think it's a, it's a great tool if you use it cautiously. But it, as I always tell them, when you use social media, you have to behave exactly like you would behave with patients here around you. If you, if you stick to what you know and uh, if you are cautious and respectful, I think it's a, 
an outstanding resource, especially Twitter. I don't know about Instagram. I don't use it that much, although I, I manage some accounts for different groups and, and things. And I've never used TikTok that much, but Twitter is great because it's you can use your hashtags and, and label the content you exactly want to to label and, and make sure it, it reaches the people you want to reach. And then and you can search for those hashtags and, and receive the information you want to receive. And, and, and then the rest, if you're interested in it, you, you get it. If you don't care about it, you just can walk through it without reading it because you know it's not going to be of your interest. So it's very useful. And it's very useful too for advocacy, both for doctors and patients. And things like like what you do and other ICU survivors do, that's very helpful for patients, but it's also very helpful for healthcare professionals as well. I think social media is very important and that it gives an equal plane for discussion in a hospital environment, say me and you, that wouldn't be an equal discussion because you're the doctor and I'm the patient. There's a disparity of, of authority in that discussion, whether we want to imagine that it's not the case, it is. But on social media, my opinion, my replies are maybe not equally weighted because, you know, if I go and start talking about a field that isn't within my experience as a patient, then my opinion isn't very weighted. But certainly in the areas I have physical experience in, I have been a patient of various issues for, for nearly 20 years. That's a lot of experience. I might not have the... A lot of doctors have, actually. I might not have the medical education that a doctor has, but as my gastro consultant and my hematologists have said later, I have a much higher understanding of my conditions than a lot of consultants have because my conditions, that's my life. And I'm going to make sure you do what's best for me. So I have studied and learned and understood about my conditions. I am well studied in these because that's how I find best that I have control and how I can feel less helpless is that I have a reasonably high level understanding and I can have a conversation with doctors about my conditions at a level that is their level. Yeah, so social media does help to sort of equalize it. And the, it breaks barriers. Yeah, because doc doctors and patients don't have the level of open and frank discussions that happen on Twitter. And of course, my tactic, particularly at the start, was I would look I saw an ICU conversation going on and I offered my opinion. It was never asked for, but I would go, I'm an ICU survivor or an ex-ICU patient. This was my experience. And I would float the opinion into the conversation and then maybe somebody would reply and then we would start talking about whatever it is and that got me noticed and then that got me talking at things and that got me talking at bigger things and, and then it evolved into this. Although I did look back at my notes. I had initially planned this in 2018. This was a concept I had in 2018, but I kept putting it off because things happened. My surgery went wrong or oh, I, had, I had exams or or whatever and then covid happened and my excuses disappeared there was oh I, I can't say i don't have time when i'm inside for three months if you listen to this you can thank corona because it wouldn't have happened otherwise there's upsides to everything it's not a very big upside but you know 
I, I joke about that and maybe maybe I'm making light of a very serious situation but the thing you will find about ICU survivors and ICU staff is we have a rather morbid sense of humour um, so if anyone's listening that's not an ICU healthcare worker this is normal it's okay it's, it's, <laughs> it's fine so I think I will now say to you thank you for coming on is there anything you wish to uh, promote or talk about no unfortunately i haven't written any books that i can promote or anything so just wanted to say thank you and i really appreciate you inviting me here i think it's a, a great job you're doing not only for yourself but for patients and icu healthcare professionals and uh, i think it's great that you keep going on well, the big aspect of this, of why I talk and why I've started this is, yes, I had very severe and acute illness in ICU. I had ARDS, I had very bad sepsis, but I was very lucky and the lingering effects that I have are a bit cognitive. I have anxiety still. I have slight peripheral neuropathy in my hands and my feet, but I have all my fingers. I have all my toes, everything pretty much had before I still have. So I am extremely lucky and extremely fortunate but I did experience the severe end of of the conditions I am able to talk and therefore for people that are not able to talk because of acute mental health issues or other reasons that I feel I should talk because they deserve a voice and I have a voice and I'm told I'm quite good at talking although I hate it I feel that I should champion the cause as best that I can to try and make things better. And, and there have been changes and it's great. What I would like to say is because I now have you on, I can now say that this is an international podcast. Yes, it because is. Because I now have a guest from another country. And so that's, that's another key thing. But obviously I would like to thank you, of course, for coming on. And I hope that you, you stay safe in this in this current crisis and things keep going the way they seem to be, that we're, we're at the tail end of this and hopefully we can get back to some sort of normality. So 